One thing that occasionally frustrates atheists is that, regardless of whether or not the beliefs are true, religion seems to be good for a person's health. And yes, this goes beyond the psychological benefits of believing that human life has an objective purpose and that there's some element of who you are that survives bodily death. See, religion builds communities, which humans need in order to survive and thrive. Religion has rituals and traditions, which bring a comforting familiarity to what is often an unstable and unpredictable world. The pearly gates promised by many religions may not be forthcoming, but religion nonetheless provides many structures that result in generational benefits for the people who adhere to the beliefs. Nonetheless, organized religion has steadily declined over the past 50 years in at least uh, North America and Europe, and it seems unlikely that church attendance will recover within my lifetime. Still, the needs for community, ritual, and tradition remain. One thing that interests me is how these needs manifest in spaces that have grown more secular over the decades. Sports, politics, celebrity gossip, music festivals, and nerd culture all bear parallels to religious rites in some capacity. For instance, secular humanists consciously try to emulate religious ceremonies for births and deaths while sidestepping the whole faith bit. I'm not sure if a secular humanist funeral will ever catch on, but I think it's fascinating to watch how people grapple with stuff like this. One religious element that's a part of every human life on Earth is the holiday thing that we all do every year. Many of these customs are rooted in old spiritual beliefs that few, if any, of the participants sincerely believe in anymore. Christmas and Halloween in particular is swarming with stuff like this. Which brings me to It's the Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown, which certainly qualifies as a holiday thing that we all do every year. It also, however, works as a meditation on the very nature of faith-based seasonal ritual and how it affects us. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. All right, joining me on this one is my sister Cheryl. Um, oh, hi, it's good to be here, but wow, what an intro. <laughs> Yeah, I guess like I, Bill, this is like, hey, it's a 22-minute children's cartoon. We're gonna have fun tonight, and then I, and I'm talking about atheism. Oh, it's fine. I'm an atheist, so like, it was kind of fun hearing that side of it. I'm like, meh. <laughs> so yeah, while we were watching this, you sort of gave your impressions of what Charlie Brown is like to you, and what you said was that Charlie Brown isn't the type of person that you want to be when you grow up. It's the person you look back on and like, yeah, I was that guy. Right? Yeah, no, 100%. Like, it's just, you can definitely see parts of yourself that, like, you might not necessarily <laughs> idolize, but, like, you identify with. Yeah, you can definitely see that in certain later characters. Tina Belcher comes to mind. Yeah, yeah. And then, what was the, the other one? Um, Char I also like that, as a kid, I think Charlie Brown is really comforting in that he's never, like, he's always that kid, right? But he's never, it's not that that kid doesn't have friends, it's just to his friends, he he will always be that kid in the friend group. Out of all the Charlie Browns in the world, he's the Charlie Browniest. I know, it's nice. There's a place for you, even if you don't check off all the cool boxes. We have done an episode on a prior Peanuts special. Uh, I did Charlie Brown Christmas last year with Toby, and I guess this is the logical next step, although I don't think It's the Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown was our number two Peanuts special. Number one was obviously the Christmas, but the one we watched the most often after that was probably the Easter Beagle. So I actually have a funny story about that. We used to get that from the library. Yes, uh, we did. It was one of the like, you know, yay, we can walk to it, we get it, free movies, yay. The, whenever it wasn't there, it is very likely that my husband actually had it taken out. And we used to piss him off, apparently, when he went and he didn't see it in the, um, in the library. We didn't just watch It's the Easter Beagle during Easter time. <laughs> we would just check it out whenever we felt like it. It was either that or Dad would make us watch that creepy animated The Hobbit movie. Ugh. Oh yeah, that Rankin-Bass atrocity. Actually, I haven't watched it all the way through since I was a kid. Maybe it's good. I own it, and I promise you, it's nightmare fuel, and it is the... What's the word you said? Was it, is it rotoscoping when you color over people? Yeah. Yeah. It, they do an, a, a tremendously bad job of that. Yeah, like even worse than Ralph Bakshi. You can see the people underneath. You can see the people underneath in Ralph Bakshi, but I'm willing to table that for something else. <laughs> well, you don't want to talk about that during the Charlie Brown episode? <laughs> <laughs> All right, plot recap. Our opening sequence is Linus and Lucy going out to a local pumpkin patch that's apparently a block away from their house to find a pumpkin. Lucy selects the largest that she can find and has Linus carry it back. 
everything's going okay-ish until Linus starts sobbing when he realizes that Lucy intends to carve it up. You didn't tell me you were gonna kill it! So that's our opening. Next we see uh, Snoopy helping Charlie Brown raking a pile of leaves, which Linus then promptly jumps into with a lollipop that he had already started, which winds up with leaves sticking everywhere. Lucy then entices Charlie Brown to kick the football. But, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, maybe this is the first time you've ever encountered Peanuts lore, but, uh, Lucy pulls the football away while Charlie Brown kicks it, causing him to fall on his back. See, Charlie Brown knew that she has a habit of doing this, but she gave him a sign affidavit saying that she promised not to, but she didn't have it notarized. Which, like, as somebody that works in the type of business that I work in, I found that way funnier than I had any right to find it funny. I was like, oh my god, it's amazing! I've heard that joke for years, literal years. The plot actually starts getting rolling when uh, Linus is seen writing his annual letter to the Great Pumpkin. It's a Santa Claus type figure that uh, manifests in the world's most sincere pumpkin patch that year, where he hands out toys to everyone who keeps the faith. What do you suppose, like, what's your mind's eye what an insincere pumpkin patch is? Is it just sugar pumpkins? I have thought about this more than I should. <laughs> That's not bad. <laughs> As he does this, everyone ridicules him for it. Snoopy just laughs his head off. Even Charlie Brown is dismissive. Violet says that Linus is wasting his time. Charlie Brown gets upset when Sally, who has a crush on Linus, seems to be kind of like getting into and vibing with the whole great pumpkin charade. And he's like, you're not going to drag my baby sister into a cult. <laughs> Lucy is the most irate, unsurprising to anyone. She keeps trying to talk him out of it. She refuses to help him mail the letter to the great pumpkin, which means that he has to improvise a latch opening with his blanket in order to do so. It's a fascinating look at the character, though. She literally, like, she's in charge of every scene she's in, right? Yep. She literally believes that her younger brother cannot mail a letter without her. I'm like, wow, like, you, it's a fun, like, I feel like it's like a window into her soul. I'm like, <laughs> I didn't know that this was deep. Dang. Charlie Brown interrupts to uh, exclaim that he has been invited to Violet's Halloween party, which we, he was not expecting. It was the first time he's been invited to anything. Lucy insists that it was a mistake and that she accidentally sent an invitation to the not-invite list. Which, like, as somebody that's had to do, like, gatherings and parties, the level of work it would take to make a not-invited list. And granted, it's, there appears to be, like, ten people in this entire neighborhood, but still. But, so the list is just Charlie Brown. Yeah. On Halloween night, uh, the gang goes trick-or-treating with each wearing a costume, although most of them are just wearing a sheet over their head as a ghost. Although Charlie Brown had an issue with the scissors, so he's covered with multiple holes. In the comic that this is adapted from, it's Linus who has the scissor issue, but mm, Linus is in the pumpkin patch. Lucy, however, is dressed like a witch because she's playing the opposite of what she actually is inside. Nobody takes this really easy layup shot. <laughs> so maybe Lucy is the boss of every scene she's in. What if, when she tells them, we're going to do trick-or-treats now, and then we're going to go to this Halloween party. And they're like, yay! Nobody's just like, maybe I want to go do trick-or-treating in like a little while, or maybe I don't want to do it with you guys. She's like, this is how we're doing everything. On the way, they stop at the pumpkin batch to ridicule Linus, but undeterred, Linus persuades Sally, largely due to her infatuation with him, to skip trick-or-treating and the Halloween party and to join him waiting in the patch for the gray pumpkin to show up. An important lesson that every young person, I feel like, learns eventually. Sometimes following the hot guy doesn't, you know, result in the best evening. The trick-or-treat group receives various sweets. Lucy gets some extra candy for her dumb brother because, you know, Lucy's a good sister despite everything. She doesn't support him emotionally or spiritually, but damn it, she'll support him in a sugar rush. Charlie Brown does not get any sweets, however. He just gets rocks. Right, what the people in that neighborhood, they're like, all of you guys are getting candy except for you, you little fucker. <laughs> 
After going back to the pumpkin patch to tease and or entreat Linus and Sally to give up on their fool's venture, they go to Violet's party. There, the girls ask Charlie Brown to serve as their model, which is initially to his delight, but then to his embarrassment when Charlie Brown realizes that they want to use the back of his head to canvas potential jack-o'-lantern designs. <laughs> I mean, he does sit through it afterwards, so that's nice. Meanwhile, Snoopy, wearing his World War I flying ace costume, climbs aboard his doghouse, imagining it as a Sopwith Camel fighter plane and having a fierce battle with the unseen Red Baron. You need, sorry, but please explain to me why I need to care about this scene. It just, it bores the heck out of me. Put a pin on that. We'll get back to that when we talk about the production. I'm going to feel like a bad person, aren't I? No, you're not. It's It wasn't about, like, Charles Schultz's dying grandfather who was a fighter-playing guy. It wasn't. There's no story like that behind it. Don't worry about it. Okay. Uh, yeah, even though Charlie Brown will not entertain Linus's great pumpkin fantasies, he's all on board with Snoopy's delusions. He salutes him as he goes out. That's his own house, man. You gotta support your house. <laughs> After Snoopy gets shot down by the Red Bear, and Snoopy loses even in his fantasies, he makes his way across the French countryside and crashes the Halloween party. He sneaks into the apple-bobbing tank just as Lucy is grabbing an apple, and they accidentally kiss, disgusting her, leading to a reprise of the Christmas specials. Ooh, dog germs gag. I need some iodine! Snoopy, before he leaves, is entertained by Schroeder performing a number of 1910s era pop tunes on his piano before he is moved to tears and goes on. We then cut to Linus and Sally in the pumpkin patch when Linus sees a mysterious shadowy figure who turns out to be Snoopy rising from the moonlit patch backlit. Mistaking him for this great pumpkin, Linus faints, but when he wakes, Sally furiously berates him for convincing her to miss the Halloween festivities even as Charlie Brown and the others come to take her home. As they leave, Linus, still adamant that the Great Pumpkin will eventually show up, promises to put in a good word for them if it comes, and then he panics after realizing that he said if instead of when. Gotta make up for that one. Absolution! About 4 a.m., Lucy wakes up to discover that Linus is not in bed. She goes outside and finds him in the pumpkin patch, covered by his blanket, shivering and half asleep. She leads him back into the house, takes off his shoes, and puts him into bed. So, like, while, again, she's maybe not the best for his mental health, she's still there for her brother's physical health. She's doing the best she can. Even though she's a therapist. Well, I mean, come on. Is she really a licensed therapist? As licensed as anyone else is to do anything. <laughs> I don't know where Snoopy got his pilot's license. I mean, it's a doghouse, though. Well, Snoopy is also a lawyer and a college student and a mystery writer. He's Joe Cool, right? Yes. Okay, I always get the Joes wrong. The next morning, Charlie Brown and Linus are leaning against a brick wall and having a commiserating session, one of the ongoing Peanuts motifs. Charlie Brown attempts to console Linus by explaining that he himself has done many stupid things as well. Hearing this makes Linus lose his shit, and he vows that the Great Pumpkin will come to the pumpkin patch next year because it's going to be more sincere than ever. Charlie Brown, with resignation, listens to Linus rant while the closing credits roll, and that is the end of the special. As well he should. Linus listens to him bitch all the time. Yeah, usually Linus is the cool, collected, calm, philosophical one, except for this one very specific thing. <laughs> Everybody's got their one thing. And as I mentioned, It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, was loosely based on a 1960 Peanuts storyline. A few things were switched around, not to mention the scissors thing that I mentioned already, but the most significant shift is that it's not Sally who waits up with Linus in the pumpkin patch, waiting for the Great Pumpkin that never comes. It is Charlie Brown, who is there largely out of pity. Out of pity? I was like, that makes sense that he would be there to support his friend, but... Like, he's worried about him, or...? It's that part of it, and he just doesn't want Linus to be alone. I mean, that's, that's nice. He knows what's gonna happen. Unsurprisingly, the smash success of A Charlie Brown Christmas in 1965 motivated CBS to commission producer Lee Mendelson and director Bill Melendez to produce more specials centering on Charles Schultz's Peanuts characters. Charlie Brown's All-Stars premiered in the summer of 1966, but CBS also wanted a holiday special that they could rerun in perpetuity every year like the Christmas special. They already knew what they had on their hands a year later, and they wanted more. <laughs> I mean, I don't blame them. It is synonymous with me with this holiday. 
Mendelssohn pushed Halloween, which feels natural in today's landscape, but was a relatively bold choice in the mid-1960s. Halloween wasn't really considered a major holiday until fairly recently. And yeah, elements of the holiday date back to the Middle Ages, you know, mummery, guising, that sort of thing. But trick-or-treating as a practice didn't become popular in the United States or Canada until the Depression, and it didn't really take off until sugar rationing ended after World War II concluded in 1947. I mean, World War II ended in 45, but the ration was ended in 47. Wasn't one of the um, first wives, first wives, oh my gosh. First ladies? Yeah, wasn't, wasn't one of them like one of the ones that pushed it? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I'm sure Sylvan could expound upon this at greater length because Sylvan works Halloween tourism for like the better part of a decade. And worked in that candy museum for a while. Yeah, the Peanuts comic strip is actually one of the earliest instances where pop culture depicted modern Halloween traditions. Charlie Brown began trick-or-treating in 1951, beating both the Disney trick-or-treat short and the Ozzie and Harriet trick-or-treating special by a year. And th those three together are sort of credited with popularizing Halloween as a national holiday. Ooh, well that's cool. Europeans didn't start trick-or-treating until E.T. became popular in 1982. How weird do you think that must be to be the house on the block that hadn't seen E.T. and suddenly there are a bunch of costumed children running around demanding candy? <laughs> If you go back and look at, like, old newspaper um, articles from that period, the UK, particularly Scotland, had an awkward relationship with Americanized Halloween. Because, once again, that's a lot of the traditions originated there. You know, guising and mummers dances and all that sort of thing. But the idea of going, knocking on a door, saying, trick or treat, I will prank you if you don't give me candy, that was seen as an aggressive gesture that was corrupting the youth by some people in Scotland. Which I understand. Like, without the, like, social contract already be in place, like, that's alarming. You're gonna do what to my house? Looking over this, it just made me think about, like, all the various things that we see as, like, ancient traditions that are actually super recent. Even getting back to, like, Christmas traditions, where, like, modern Christmas didn't really start until the mid-19th century, and a lot of the iconography that we associated with it, with, like, Christmas trees and stuff, didn't really come around until the 1870s. And I was always under the impression that Halloween kind of happened at the similar trajectory. And no, Halloween's even later. Yeah, it is kind of bizarre thinking about it. It's like one of those like milestones of your childhood. Like you can like measure the time based on like what, or at least I can, based on what Halloween costume I wore that year. Yeah, now it feels like it's a thing that's always been there. Like, uh, another thing that made me think of that that I came across recently is like when pizza delivery became popular. No. <laughs> that's so sad. I know, I mean, I guess it makes sense. But like, I'm like, oh, that's so sad that people just didn't have somebody like come to your house with pizza. Pizza delivery didn't take off until the mid-1960s. Like, frozen pizza predates pizza delivery by a few decades. DiGiorno's lying to you. It's DiGiorno, then it's delivery. <laughs> That's cute. When Schultz got on board, he uh, introduced the Great Pumpkin to the comic strip as a criticism of the traditions associated with Santa Claus. Schultz didn't like the idea of Santa because he felt that it forced adults to lie to their kids about Santa being real, and that would eventually lead to disillusionment that would sow distrust in authority figures and parental figures amongst kids. I mean, there's that period where you're like, my parents aren't lying to me, and then you're looking at like all this evidence, and you're like, oh, my parents played a weird elaborate prank on me for years. <laughs> Yeah, this is not an uncommon criticism of Santa. Later generations sometimes are encouraged to present Santa as a sort of make-believe game. Yeah, a, a concept. Like, you want to become a Santa. Yeah, I find that this version of it, like treating Santa like a game that everyone's in on, is comparable to kayfabe. Like, we all know, um, kayfabe is associated with professional wrestling. Oh, okay, okay. In the most narrow of scope, kayfabe is the idea that whenever a wrestler is in public, they do not break character. Like, if you spot a wrestler at the supermarket, and you recognize him, and you point him out, he has to respond to you as the wrestler. I mean, that's amazing, and also how every adult in life should act. If a child runs up to you and calls you a Disney damn princess, then you are a Disney damn princess. Let them enjoy it for a little while. 
Everyone knows that it's fake. The wrestlers know that it's fake. Obviously, the producers and the people and the crew members know it's fake, and the audience knows that it's fake. But it's fun to play along and have everyone remain in character. It's wholesome, and it feels like it unites us all. I mean, there's a lot of... No, I know. A lot of unpleasant things about how wrestling is run as a business, but that's a different episode. Scholes, while writing the script, he used Charlie Brown's disappointed I Got a Rock lament as a one-off gag. Melendez, however, loved the joke and felt that it should be a running motif repeated two more times. Comedy comes in threes and all that. Yeah. Scholes and Mendelssohn disagreed, but were outvoted by the rest of the creative team. As well as they should have, because that's an amazing little part of that movie. I mean, we both laughed, even though we've seen this many times, and we all we, we both knew it was coming. Oh yeah, schadenfreude. Mendelssohn, on the other hand, was really into a recent Peanuts storyline where Snoopy imagined himself as a World War I pilot chasing the Red Baron. He insisted that this be used in the special. It was so boring! Mendelssohn felt that the imagery would work even better when animated and be super exciting. Okay, I mean, that. okay, so now I don't feel bad. <laughs> he did this for himself. Got it. Schultz credits the special with pushing him to keep doing Red Baron sequences in the comic to the point where it became inseparable from the character, and it also encouraged him to develop other personas for the increasingly more anthropomorphic Snoopy. If you read the Peanuts strips in order, Snoopy is just a cartoon dog when he's introduced. He does have thought balloons where he thinks dog stuff, but he isn't, like, running around and being mistaken for a kid and doing, like, kid stuff. Alright, I'm gonna say this, and I think it's gonna really inform you a bit about me as a human. As a child, I genuinely thought that Snoopy was their dad, their single parent, and he was raising them. I can see how someone would come to that conclusion if they were young enough. Charlie Brown feeds him! Yeah, but whenever Charlie Brown gets into legal trouble, Snoopy shows up in a bowler hat <laughs> with a briefcase. He's their single father. It's like um, Peabody and, uh, hang on, Mr. Peabody and Sherman? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can see how you can conflate those two characters. Clearly dogs are allowed to raise children. Snoopy had tried his hand as, a, or paw, as a novelist a few months before he became a fighter pilot, but yeah, this is this rock was moving. It was just gaining momentum because of the special. That's like a reverse Raw doll career move. I like it. This also marks the first animated special where Lucy pulls the football away from Charlie Brown. Which is one of the first things I think of when I think of Charlie Brown. This is one of the oldest running gags in Peanuts, uh, with Violet pulling the ball away from Charlie Brown in a 1951 strip. That one, however, happened because Violet was worried about Charlie Brown accidentally kicking her hand. However, the next year, Lucy pulled the ball away deliberately as a prank. <laughs> And then continued to do so for decades since. Isn't there, like, one, like, cute strip where he gets to kick the football? No. Oh. Scholl said that if he actually <laughs> let Charlie Brown kick the football, it would be a disservice to the character, even though everyone was constantly telling him to let him do it. I just assumed that would be, like, the last one, like... Um... Everyone was assuming it was going to be the last one. What it's was... not. What's the last... Do you know what the last strip is? Yes, I've seen it. What is it? Charlie Brown lamenting that nobody ever writes him love letters. That's how, that's the note he ends it on? Well, the last one, the last, last one is just like a personal note saying for like, thank you for reading the comic all these years. But the last one, that's like a peanut storyline. I mean, I guess what else? I mean, during the last year of the strip, when everyone knew it was ending, they were like, so, Shulls, you're going to let Charlie Brown kick the football and all these other things? And he was like, Shulls is like, no, I'm not doing any of it. <laughs> Nobody gets what they want. He's <laughs> like, you don't understand the purpose of this strip. That being said, there was an instance where Lucy, in 1979, promised to hold the ball, and she did, and Charlie Brown kicks her hand. Whoa! <laughs> I guess that's good enough. There is also an instance in the last year of the strip where Lucy is holding the football for Charlie Brown but gets called inside by her mother, so she has Rerun hold the ball. Later on, when Rerun comes inside, she asks him if he pulled the ball away, and Rerun refuses to tell her. Oh! He's like, you'll never know. <laughs> and she screams. <laughs> I feel like that's probably the perfect revenge that's better than getting your hand kicked. <laughs> Like A Charlie Brown Christmas, It's the Great Pumpkin was sponsored by Coca-Cola and Dolly Madison Snack Cakes what? and features product placement for both of them in the cartoon itself. That's kind of ironic that like they're, they're dissing Santa and Coca-Cola is paying for it. Yep. 
Also, like with the Charlie Brown Christmas, the product placement was carefully scrubbed out of later broadcasts and also on home video releases. I was gonna say, I didn't see any Coca-Cola cans. Because they were deliberately removed. I wonder where they were. I know in the Charlie Brown Christmas special, the part where they're throwing the snowballs at the cans on the fence. That makes sense. That's an easy one. Easy way to do it. Not like E.T. <laughs> Well, I did go into the cast for um, Charlie Brown Christmas, and I don't want to repeat myself too much for this episode. Figured I'd do some updates on a few of the changeovers. Uh, unlike a lot of preceding cartoons and a lot of later cartoons, the Charlie Brown specials were cast with actual child uh, actors. Not child actors, they found children with little to no acting experience because they wanted the performances to be more naturalistic. That does explain the delivery. And that has continued to the present day. The children voice the characters until they age out and they just replace them with new kids. The very first Charlie Brown, who is also in this one, is Peter Robbins. I mentioned that he wasn't doing so hot last year. He dropped out of the entertainment industry in 1972, pursuing radio and real estate work, but it didn't quite gel for him because he had a lifelong struggle with mental illness, not being diagnosed with uh, bipolar disorder until he was in his early 60s. He had multiple arrests for domestic violence and stalking, and fell in and out of substance abuse. In 2019, he claimed to have turned a corner and gotten clean and be taking proper medication. He was working on his autobiography, which he was going to title Confessions of a Blockhead. Unfortunately, in January of this year, he committed suicide at the age of 65. That is a complicated and upsetting tale of a person's life. Yeah, that was a lot of the shoehorn in the 30 seconds right there. I'm not sure how much of that can be attributed to, like, stage parents or anything like that. For whatever it's worth, Robbins always looked back fondly on his Charlie Brown years. He had a Charlie Brown and Snoopy tattoo on his arm. Well, that's nice. But I mean, like, too, like, to have undiagnosed mental illness, especially to have it in that time period where it's so stigmatized... Yeah, I'm not quite sure how to remark upon the child actors who played the first wave of Peanuts characters in the specials. One thing I noticed is that during lockdown pandemic in 2020, I read every Peanuts strip from 1950 to 2000, every single one in order. Was it comforting? It sounds comforting. Yeah, I, the, the plan was that I was just going to read up until like the mid-60s, which is like considered the golden age for it, but I just kept liking them. I, I never felt that it fell off. I just kept going through them, and I was reading the Fanographics volumes on a library reading app, and those ones all have introductions from like various admirers of Shoals and various corners of the entertainment industry, like Matt Groening wrote one, Aww. Lemony Snicket wrote one, John Waters wrote one. <laughs> okay. But they didn't get any of the child actors who voiced the Peanuts characters, and I'm not sure why. Maybe they just didn't think to reach out to them? Well, that's the thing. They did get the Broadway actress who played Glinda in Wicked because her very first gig was Sally Brown in, in uh, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, like the Broadway version. So yeah, they she, must have reached out to them. She still has an agent, though. Yeah. But yeah, I'm not sure why because, yeah, they went all over the place. Like the last volume, they got Obama to write the intro. Ah! Well, he was president when the last volume came out, so I guess they were going to ask whoever was president at the time. I'm fine with it being Obama. <laughs> But, uh, cast changeover. Anne Altieri was cast as both Violet and Frida in this because the actress for Violet was promoted to Lucy. Ooh. Well, the person who voiced Lucy in Charlie Brown Christmas, her voice changed, so that was the only one she got to be Lucy in. <laughs> I mean, well, there you have it. Altieri was incredibly nervous about voicing a cartoon character for this. She was aware of how successful the Christmas special was, and at the end of every recording day, she vomited. Well, well it's not like people were gonna find her in the street like nobody knows who the voice actresses are yeah and melinda's tried to like be as supportive as he could he was very paternal and and tried to be fun with the kids whenever he coached them but yeah there's no way to get around it and the kids liked him because uh he had a fun mustache like a Salvador Dali mustache? No, like a big bushy cartoon mustache. I mean, that's wonderful. Like, I don't have a problem with it. Like, so like Scruffy from like Futurama. Yeah, kind of like that. <laughs> it's just whenever anyone says a fun mustache, my immediate thought is one that looks like it's going to have bells hanging off of it. Don't mind me. Another thing I should note is uh, Kathy Steinberg is Sally Brown. She was Sally in the Christmas special. 
But uh, like the Christmas special, she was very young. She's in her early 60s now as we're recording this, so she was a baby. Yeah, she was a tiny. Good on her for getting her lines. She had some issues with that. As I mentioned in the Christmas special, often they had a hard time enunciating the vocab words that children do not say, but are <laughs> often enunciated by Peanuts characters. Yeah. In particular, she struggled with restitution. <laughs> that's so cute. I, be, I bet that's adorable outtakes, though. Melendez had her record one syllable at a time and then spliced it together in post. That's really cute. If you listen for it, you can tell. Now I have... You need to tell me these things before we watch these, Ryan. Towards the end of the recording dates, Steinberg's tooth started getting loose. And it was one of her front teeth, so she would have started lisping. So everyone was afraid that her tooth was going to fall out and then she'd lisp her last couple of lines and therefore ruin the preceding recordings. <laughs> so her mother rushed her over and had her do the last couple of bits. That's the best outcome because I was expecting you to be like, so they rubber cemented the tooth in her face and then she's had dental problems ever since. <laughs> no, this isn't Disney. This is, this is Bill Melendez. Bill Melendez is a decent man. <laughs> All right, the music for this, like with the Charlie Brown Christmas and most of these Peanut specials following, the score was recorded by uh, jazz pianist Vince Guaraldi. He did this one with a sextet, unlike the previous one, which is a trio. Just him, a double bass, and a, and a percussionist. Oh my god, my dumbass was just like the thing that sailors use to see how far apart the stars are so they can get home. That's, that's a sextant. Never yeah. mind. I got there. I got there. It's okay. <laughs> I was like, why, how do you use a sextant for this? The band was Guaraldi on piano, Monty Budwig on double bass, Colin Bailey on drums, John Gray on guitar, and Ronald Lang on reeds, although largely flute based on what I could notice, and Emmanuel Klein on trumpet. This is a big expansion on the Christmas recording, so there's a lot more texture and colors than uh, there was in the prior one. It was orchestrated by John Scott Trotter with arrangements by Robert G. Hartley and Guaraldi. This was recorded on October 4th, 1966, about two weeks before the special was aired, so that sync job was rushed. <laughs> I was going to say, like, that's like really good timing, though. They got like right before Halloween. Guaraldi's composition, Linus and Lucy, was reprised in several spots, notably with the flute counterpoint by uh, Lang this time. Generally on the scenes where Linus and Lucy are doing stuff, unlike in the Christmas special where it's just everybody boogieing out. <laughs> Schroeder plays four 1910s pop songs that I already mentioned on the plot recap that Snoopy dances along to. They are It's a Long Way to Tipperary, There's a Long Long Trail, Pack Up Your Troubles in Your Old Kit Bag, and Roses of Picardy. Snoopy gives three toothy grins during Pack Up Your Troubles when Schroeder gets to the point where the lyrics go, smile, smile, smile. Oh, that's cute! Uh, he's singing along. Unlike the Christmas special, the soundtrack was not commercially released until 2018. Although Guaraldi re-recorded the Great Pumpkin Waltz and other numbers from the special on his later albums. This always struck me as a little weird because the Christmas special, that music is a holiday perennial. That's always played in shopping malls, it's on oldie stations, it's a part of the landscape. Yeah, it's comforting, it's nice. When you, I don't like Christmas music like at all, I'm a weirdo like that thanks to retail, but I do, I have, I smile when I think of the Peanuts like Christmas music. I kind of think of Guaraldi's Christmas score as kind of like anti-Christmas music. Maybe that's why I like it. Like it has a melancholic undercurrent too. It. it sort of acknowledges that, yeah, uh, this forced jollity sometimes just makes your seasonal depression a little worse, doesn't it? I feel so seen right now. <laughs> yeah, Guaraldi's got your back. Yeah! Once again, weird that the Halloween soundtrack wasn't given a similar issue because it seems like every damn year they're putting out a new, different, upgraded vinyl version of its Charlie Brown Christmas with, like, this one's got green vinyl now. Well, and also, too, like, <laughs> that's cute. Also, too, though, like, growing up, we had, like, a Nightmare Before Christmas shoved in our face, so it's not like even when we were tinier, it wasn't profitable. Uh, yeah, the 2018 album uh, unfortunately pulls music directly from a Blu-ray DVD of the special with the TV edits and sound effects still present. The original recordings could not be located and were believed lost at the time. Um, Ooh, this sounds like there's a good 
turn. Lee Mendelssohn supervised a search of the archives for the original voice and soundtrack recordings of the Peanuts media and ran it until his death in 2019. Eventually, Vince Guaraldi's master recordings for the Great Pumpkin special were found and an album for the full, unedited performances was commercially released in August of 2022. Oh, that's wonderful. Happy ending. It's the Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown first aired on October 27, 1966 and was watched by more than half of all American households that owned a TV set at the time. So it was just as successful as the Christmas special. Notably, Ray Bradbury watched it the very first year with his daughters, who were furious that the Great Pumpkin turned out to be not real in the special's climax, to the point where they got up and kicked the TV. Oh my goodness! Inspired by this rage, Bradbury started writing the Halloween tree. I love the Halloween tree! That is one of my favorite Halloween movies, and nobody knew what I was talking about for years, and they're like, that was a fever dream. It didn't happen. And then suddenly everyone's like, oh, the Halloween tree. Fuck you, I love the Halloween tree! The Halloween tree happened, and it was narrated by Spock. It was so good! I mean, actually, it's tainted by nostalgia for me, so I think it's amazing. It might not be good at all. I believe the book is more beloved than the actual animated special. Well, I love, it taught me about, uh, oh my god, I almost said Cinco de Mayo. That's not, El Dia de los Muertos. <laughs> yeah, Cinco de Mayo is something else. A little, little different. It's the Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown got nominated for a 1966 Emmy. Uh, I could not find what for and what it lost to. So hey, let me know in the comments. <laughs> That's a little disappointing. CBS rerun the special until the year 2000, at which point ABC bought the TV licenses for uh, the Peanut specials. Oh, okay. It ran there until 2019, when Apple TV bought the rights to the TV specials. This angered some who believed that it was inappropriate to make such a long-standing cultural tradition inaccessible to those who were not willing to pay for a specialty streaming service. I mean, you're already paying for other things, so yeah. Apple responded by allowing PBS to broadcast the specials uh, starting in 2021. Yeah, so now people can see them? Yes, Yay. as long as they have access to broadcast television, they can watch the Great Pumpkin at the same time that they usually do if they're making a thing out of it. Never thought this would come out of my mouth, but keep it a classy apple. <laughs> <laughs> one time. One time. Yeah, we've talked about this in prior episodes, how the uh, advent of increasingly more atomized streaming services is turning so much media into this walled garden, and that used to be accessible to millions of people, but now now can only be found easily and legally if you're willing to pay premium rates for it. I think Golden Age Looney Tunes shorts are pretty emblematic of this. It's like, oh, it's just $6.99. But you're like, I have to have like 13 of these. Yeah, it's just cable with extra steps at this point. The first home video release for The Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown was a 1982 CED issue. What's a CED? Somewhat less successful than Laserdisc. <laughs> okay. <laughs> a VHS issue occurred for the first time in 1985. It first hit DVD in 2000, Blu-ray in 2011, and we got a 4K version in 2017. So yeah, if you don't want the uh, Apple TV walled garden access to peanut specials and you're still sticking to physical media because you can't trust these conglomerates to that degree and you consider the peanut specials to be an essential component that you want on your shelf, they're not hard to find. Well, also too, like there's like nothing on Apple TV. I'm, I'm serious. There's like three things that and it's not worth paying for just three things. I know people like Ted Lasso. I don't know about what else is on there. I can't think of it off the top of my head, but I know there was something else that we were like, oh, and it's like, you can get an Apple TV subscription. And we're like, meh. All right, that brings me to themes. And I got one. It's calling back to the intro. Uh, the Great Pumpkin as a metaphor for religious faith. Okay, let's do it. All right, before I compare Linus's sincere belief in the Great Pumpkin to theism and Christian apologetics, I feel that I should clarify what I mean by God, as that is a term that means different things to different people. Uh, I don't mean God as some kind of higher power beyond human comprehension, you know, the way that it's invoked occasionally by, like, say, Albert Einstein and even Stephen Hawking, neither of which are theists. I also don't mean God in a pantheistic sense, where all matter and energy in the universe exist in some form of ever-shifting sense of interbeing, and creatures of consciousness like ourselves are manifestations of the universe experiencing itself. Those and other notions of God are not what most people 
in my corner of the world think of when they are asked if they believe in God. For my purposes here, I mean God as he is traditionally depicted in Jewish, Christian, and Muslim scripture. An anthropomorphic personal deity who is all good, all knowing, personally invested in the welfare of every human who has ever lived, and responsive to prayer. Scholes almost certainly didn't intend the Great Pumpkin to be a metaphor promoting an atheistic outlook. By all accounts, Scholes was a socially conservative person in many matters, up to and including being a devout Christian. That being said, the religious subtext behind Linus's devotion to the Great Pumpkin did not escape Scholes. There are points in the special itself where Charlie Brown is like, what we're experiencing is a difference of denomination, I think. Oh, I loved that. Classy. There are also several Peanut storylines in the comic strip involving Linus going door-to-door in October to proselytize about the Great Pumpkin, a la Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, that strikes me as, like, fitting for the character, so... Linus has no evidence to support the Great Pumpkin being real and every reason to conclude that it's all made up. Despite his attentive practice and sincere faith, the Great Pumpkin stubbornly refuses to manifest year after year. God is likewise equally reluctant to directly answer our entreaties and make his intent clear to us. To paraphrase the physicist Sean Carroll, there is absolutely nothing in the physical world that, if you look at, just objectively tells you in neon lights, this is who you are, this is why you're here, this is what your purpose is. You're just not going to find it. You can look for things and try to piece it together for yourself, but once again, no hard and fast declarative statement. No Hallmark movie answers for you, sir. Nope. All we have is an assortment of heavily redacted papers that openly contradict each other, occasionally fly in the face of scientific or historical fact, and promise that miraculous and open communication with God was pretty common about 2,000 years ago. As my tone implies, I find a great deal of this questionable. I haven't spelled this out clearly in the podcast before, but speaking purely for myself, I am not an especially spiritual person. If I was forced to pick a label for myself, I'd say that agnostic atheist would suit my current frame of mind best. And I try to accept empirically vetted facts, uh, dismiss things that have been falsified, and try to admit that I don't know about the things that aren't settled. This is an easier to say than to do, obviously, because pattern recognition and belief is just hardwired into the human brain by all accounts, but I try to do the best I can. Ooh, ooh, question for you. I know I'm interrupting. I, feel, I, I do feel a little guilty, but I am curious, because you haven't actually flat out told me before that you thought you leaned a little bit towards the atheist side. Do you ever, like, at night, walk down the hallway, like you're going to the bathroom or something, the lights are off, and you still get that, like, tingle on the back of your neck, and you're like, ah, like, safety, not safe ghosts or something, and then, like, you get to the bathroom, and you're like, do I believe in ghosts? Like, do you ever have that, like, weird contradictory moment where you're just like, wait, Oh, I I shouldn't be afraid right now. I'm an atheist. Even when I held spiritual beliefs stronger than I currently do, I never quite got on the ghost train. I don't believe in ghosts, but if I have to pee in the middle of the night, I walk fast. And I don't know why. Yeah, that's never happened to me. That being said, if, say, a Hellraiser box manifested on the table, I'd be like, alright, that's probably just like a prop that my roommate got, but I'm not playing with that. So, when you say manifest, you mean like you saw it there, it wasn't there beforehand, not like you see it just like rise up out of the table. Oh, if it rises up out of the table, then all bets are off. Then the table goes outside. Don't touch the box. This reminds me of a conversation I had with Sylvan when we were watching Hammer Dracula movies. And uh, I, I pointed out, like, okay, this is the part where the protagonist does the dumbest thing he possibly can. And Sylvan was like, what, what, that he disbelieves in the existence of Dracula? I was like, oh no, Dracula is a settled account in the Hammerverse. Nobody disbelieves in the existence <laughs> of Dracula. He is as real as the sunrise. And Sylvan was like, I thought the protagonist was an atheist. He's like, he is, but Dracula's real. <laughs> As in, cape, blood-drinking, repelled by the crucifix Dracula. There's a, a, a lot of human history involved in, like, cannibalism, like, in, in certain ways. Doing cannibalism the right way that extends, like, health benefits. So, like, who's to say? Like, you know, people would drink uh, the blood of, like, hanged convicts to try to cure epilepsy. Well, first off, cannibalism has the opposite effect in the real world. Oh, 100%. But no, I'm saying, like, you know, there was a belief in that, so... 
But yeah, in the Hammerverse, Dracula's real, and once again, this is movie Dracula. The one that is burned by holy water. <laughs> Sylvan could not wrap his head around the idea of an atheist existing in a world where this <laughs> is an empirically resolved fact. Like, I'd go right back to Roman Catholic Catholicism if I suddenly discovered tomorrow that Dracula's real. Oh yeah, and you immediately become a monk, you gotta get into necromancy, you gotta protect your family. With that in mind, <laughs> sorry for derailing you. I feel compelled to point out that my previous statement about the lack of God's presence being an argument against his existence would qualify as a logical fallacy known as an argument from incredulity. After all, something isn't necessarily disproven by the fact that you don't personally find it plausible. An ancient Egyptian would have no idea what quantum entanglement is. I don't exactly know what quantum entanglement is myself. But quantum entanglement happens nonetheless. An absence of evidence is not necessarily the evidence of absence as your 7th grade philosophy class would teach you. That being said, this argument applies to God about as well as it does to Bigfoot. There's proof though that Bigfoot was a hoax. There is proof that one, that one specific Bigfoot incident was a hoax, but it is still... I didn't say Sasquatch, I said Bigfoot. <laughs> Don't, let's not mince words here. Uh, yeah, the Lord works in mysterious ways, or it's all God's plan. Feels like a wishy-washy, hand-wavy excuse to me, but it's a go-to in apologetics for a reason. Uh, people buy into the shifting goalposts argument like that, because at the end of the day, like Bigfoot, God is unfalsifiable. There is currently no objective test that can conclusively demonstrate whether or not God is real. Now, there are a great number of physicists and biologists who are dismissive of God. Not all, but a lot. But that doesn't come from God's stubborn refusal to manifest. It's more of a matter of both the unfalsifiable aspect of the question, making it irrelevant to scientific inquiry, and also God's lack of utility in proving theories, getting back to that point. It's possible that we can explain how the universe came to being without invoking a watchmaker, and it is possible that we can explain how we function as organic life forms without putting a ghost in the machine. Louis Pasteur, what? what? <laughs> so he's my favorite scientist. The reason that we can have milk that doesn't spoil is because a man was just like, bitch, stop bringing God into it. I will prove to you that something else is ruining this milk. It is the sassiest, most petty thing ever, and I think it's amazing. He also cured rabies. I didn't know that. Yeah, people forget that. That's a big deal. That is a really big deal. It's like when people um, credit Eli Whitney for inventing the cotton gin. That's because that's in your brain forever. Yeah, but Eli Whitney also popularized the concept of interchangeable parts. I will say that there was a black woman who who tried to patent the cotton gin, like uh, an equivalent to that before Eli Whitney, and she could not because she was a black woman. Yeah, and uh, Eli Whitney didn't invent interchangeable parts. He just made them popular. Yeah. Also, he happened to be located very close to her when she was not able to patent it. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Anyway, moving on. But yeah, if these questions that I raised before we got into Eli Whitney can be answered without putting God in the mix, then why do so? Occam's razor pushes us to prioritize ideas that require the fewest number of assumptions. It is by no means a perfect philosophy, but it is often sensible for cases where we don't have all the facts, which in metaphysical issues like this is definitely the case. I don't have all the answers, and I won't tell you not to believe in God. I try to respect a person's religious beliefs as long as they aren't using those beliefs as an excuse to hurt people or persecute marginalized groups or wage war. And a lot of the, I mean, don't get me wrong, yeah, there's been problems with organized religion, but like having a community does, you were talking about before, it does a lot of good things for people. Yeah, I'm not going to knock anything like that. And I'm not going to be like Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins or the various YouTube douchebags they inspired in the early 2010s where they say that like religion is the cause of all the world's suffering. I don't think that's true. I think that it's the excuse for a lot of the world's suffering. I do think that if religion was taken out of the mix, the world's most awful people would just find some other pretext to do the shitty things that they're planning to do anyways. It's just that God is a convenient crutch to lean on. Well, it's a way to get a 
lot of different people to immediately kind of see themselves as part of something together. So, like, yeah, that can easily be manipulated. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the history of the 20th century, just in isolation, a lot of the most horrible things being committed were by people who used God as an excuse, but there were also avowed atheists who committed some of the top-level atrocities, your Joseph Stalins, your Pol Pots, and the thing that ties all of those awful people together wasn't religion, it was a fanatical devotion to an ideal that they were completely unable to divorce themselves from, whether that had a spiritual dimension to it or not. Yay! <laughs> yeah, at the end of it, I wanted to evoke the American physicist Richard Feynman, who wasn't a theist himself. But was he a fine man? I, I'm sure in a lot of ways. But in this case, he implored us to embrace doubt, to not be afraid of uncertainty, because while doubt can be a very troubling thing and a thing that keeps us awake at night, it's just going to be an element of our lives. We can devote our entire being into trying to prove a case that turns out to be false, or try to uncover something that isn't there, or to come up with an idea that ends up being falsified. And to not lash yourself to it too severely and to be comfortable with the idea that this might not be everything or anything. Don't put all of your eggs in one basket, Ryan. Yeah, he said essentially that it's better to live your entire life in doubt than to cling to something that you know is wrong. That does kind of sound like haunting, right? To just be like, this is so much of my identity that you can show me everything and I, I won't look away. Yeah, that has happened to me once or twice. Like, there was this instance where, like, astrological charts were updated because it was discovered through advanced telescopes that the stars and planets were moving a bit differently than uh, they were before. And a friend of mine, who's really into astrology, just refused to accept it. And she flat out said, unvarnished, I'm not accepting this because it contradicts everything that I believe. And I, I was surprised by this, and it's, I've maintained this for like, this happened like 10 years ago, because I have never had someone who had a faith belief like that and said that so bluntly. <laughs> I mean, at least she knows herself. That was incredibly forthright, and I was not accustomed from hearing that from people who uh, exercise any kind of like magical thinking on the level of thinking astrology is the thing. I'm trying to think like where I would like get hit with that. Yeah, it's hard because you don't know your own blind spots. I bet it has to do with mental health. Like, that's a really big, like, titular part of, like, my persona, like, my identity, like, how I became the adult I became. So I bet if, like, the personalized concept of mental health gets, like, disproved, I'll be like, well, I'm dying on this hill. <laughs> That's come up before in previous episodes where I talked about how uh, psychology is argued by some as something that will eventually be seen as a pseudoscience that leads to a real science. Which, I mean, I do like a lot of the pseudosciences. <laughs> like, astrology is a pseudoscience that led to the real science of astronomy. Alchemy is a pseudoscience to let led to the real science of chemistry. And eventually, once neuroscience is better at understanding how the brain works and where all this stuff is coming from inside us, psychology will morph into the real thing. And then, uh, then psychology gets to be magic and there's going to be a YA novel series about it. You heard it here first, kids. All right, well, thanks for listening to this. We are more than three times longer than the special before edits, so I think this is a good time to close things out. Yay! Is there anything that you'd like to talk about in regards to the It's the Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown before we sign off? We walked so far away from that movie in this conversation. I don't know if I can find my way back. <laughs> no, I'm going to call it quits. I'll just stay lost. Our pumpkin patch wasn't sincere enough, I guess. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. Good night. Hi, this is Ryan from the editing room, here to point out one item that I overlooked during my breakdown of this special. You see, after the special initially aired, according to Scholes, lots and lots of children would send him bags of candy and tell them to hand it off to Charlie Brown. They felt bad about him getting all those rocks. 
just about every retrospective on It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, includes this little factoid, and it's a little embarrassing for me to have overlooked it, especially since I subjected Cheryl to all that stuff about atheism and the Great Pumpkin as a metaphor for misplaced faith. That's kind of an existential bummer, and I think Cheryl's reaction to the candy bit would have been adorable, but oh well, here it is in the postscript. <laughs> 